Hey everyone, welcome to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and I will be sitting down in one-on-one hour-long interviews with individuals from this amazing island that we live on to hear the stories that brought them here, and also to dig a little deeper and to find out about the important stories that brought them to this point in their lives right now. Today, I will be speaking with Sarah Connolly. Now, a lot of you might know Sarah as the manager at the Dragonfly Family Resource Center. But today, we're going to find out a lot more about Sarah, such as what gives her deep belly laughter. We're also going to find out what life experience she came out of with minimal scratches. And also, she's going to tell us the cutest thing she's ever bought for five bucks. Here's my interview with Sarah Connolly. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for joining us in the Basement Studios. Thank you, Chris, for having me. I appreciate the invitation. How's, uh, how's your day been so far? I've had a great day. Great day. Went for a walk. Where'd you go? I'm around Buck Lake. Okay. With a good friend. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. Raining or not? Not raining today. Not raining. <laughs> One of very few days. In That's right. This 2018 so far. Well, um, the first question that we're starting this show off with is what brought you to Pender Island? Yeah, I really... Uh, like this question a lot because when you first told me about your project, I was thinking that I'd been telling the same answer to people at parties and people that I run into that were newcomers. And I always kind of said the same thing that uh, I moved some friends over here 14 years ago, and uh, lo and behold, there was a cottage for sale, and Steve and I bought it. But really, there was so many more deeper things going on. And frankly, I wasn't really happy living in Victoria. And I really was called to come back to nature and start digging in the dirt and grow a garden and really commit to Steve in our journey together as a couple. So Pender felt like coming home and and home in that... I don't know if I had felt that at home ever, that it just felt that this is where exactly where I needed to be right in that moment and still feels like that. Okay, well, let's let's dig into some details here. So Steve, you're referring to as your husband? Yes. Yeah. And so at that time, you guys were married? No, not married yet. Um, we didn't get married for another few years after that. So it was just our 14 year anniversary moving to Pender just a couple of days ago. And we started just building a garden and a greenhouse and got married a year and a half later on Brooks Point. Okay. So you were living in Victoria, you said at That's the right. time. Okay. And so did you did you grow up in Victoria? I lived there when I was 15. So I moved there when I was 15 from the Kootenays. Okay. So you were living in Victoria. And how did you discover Pender Island? What was your first... Interaction with Pender Island. Steve, actually, we we actually camped here um, a few years before that, but we weren't really called to it then. It was mostly that Steve was itching to buy a place and we couldn't afford it in Victoria. I was a student at the time. And we moved friends over that also wanted to get into the market and buy a home and build a garden and start a family. And so when we moved them, I felt that same kind of, I want that too. And how can I get that? And then with having friends here, it was that much more easier to commit to, well, I could do that because they're just down the road and I'll have that safety net in place of having already built in friends. And how old were you at the time? I was 27. So you you make that uh, commitment moving over to Pender. And mm-hmm. so you buy a property and a cottage, you said? That's right. Uh, what happened from there? What was the What was the vision? What was the dream? Well, initially, I, was, I thought I'd be a farmer, <laughs> a little market farmer. And then I realized how hard it was to actually have any money in making a garden work like that. My grandfather had an acre of garden back in Ontario, and he used to make a bit of money on the side. And I loved that simple lifestyle of it, thinking about going into the garden and picking really great food and having people 
be healthy from those choices, having us be healthy uh, realistically that didn't pan out. But what did pan out was that we have a beautiful garden that we keep expanding and we have a love for going into the garden, picking our food for dinner that night. And um, yeah. Okay. And so when you were living in Victoria, what were you doing for uh, work before you came over to Pender? I was a gardener at Butcher Gardens. Steve and I met there. He was uh, a purchasing agent there. But I was also a student. So I was working in the summers at Butcher's and then going to school and really unhappy at school. I had no direction. I really didn't know what I was supposed to be when I grew up. I I felt like I was going to school for everybody else. I felt like it was something that I could say I was doing with my life. So if somebody asked me, what are you doing? I could say school, and then it would just answer all their questions, even though I felt like it was just a, a cop-out answer, because I didn't know. I didn't know what I was doing there. I wonder if a lot of people experience that because what you just described, I experienced as well, too, when I was that age and that uh, it is it is an easy uh, back answer to give somebody and yeah. doesn't mean it much to some people, but to other people can mean everything at that time. But what were you taking at school at that time? Everything <laughs> like anthropology to psychology to criminology. I think I was focused on getting a teaching degree, but I didn't have a real drive like the rest of those students that were going to get their teaching degree. I was dabbling in everything. And, you know, I, I, I think sometimes there was a couple classes that really stood out for me that I loved so much. And I wish that I could have felt some sort of strong feeling to be like, hey, that might be the path. If you're feeling that drive and you're excited to go to that class and you're excited to do the work, maybe there's a gold nugget in there. And yet I dismissed it. And those were um, creative writing classes. So it's kind of interesting because it's now a passion of mine to do that. Okay. So creative writing is a passion. Well, can you speak more to that for us? Yeah, sure. I think that I always liked journaling. I journaled ever since I was a little girl writing about my day. And um, when I would travel overseas, I kept a journal. And I think even in high school, I, I loved English class and writing short stories. And a lot of it would just be experiences that I had. It wasn't always fiction writing. It was a lot of things that I had seen or witnessed or heard about that really, I just wanted to bring that, give it life, you know. And so uh, when I came back from a couple of years living in the UK, I felt like I had so many experiences locked in there and finally just wanted to get pen to paper. And so what, what did you do to get pen to paper? What was the, uh, what was the project that you were working on? Uh, a novel, a young adult novel that is finished, but it's pretty muddy. And I revisit it a lot. And yeah, it's... So such a massive project that it just kind of leaves me deflated sometimes because I don't know where to start or finish. But the fact is, it keeps me writing and I can't not write. That's one thing I've noticed is that I am really drawn to do it. It makes me hungry, hungry for more. Oh, really? The yeah. more you write, the more you the want more to. I want to do it. Yeah. I heard somebody say years ago that they didn't know what they thought until they wrote it down. Oh, I think that's beautiful. Yeah, I can I can really relate to that. At the time when I really started writing, I was gardening at Poets Cove. And it was, I think, in my second or third year gardening down there. Pretty much knew the place, everything it needed. There was no creativeness in it anymore. Uh, I'd been gardening for years before that. And so it wasn't creative for me anymore. And I, I needed to be creative. And these stories of my time in particular in London, when I was a bartender, would just roll out of me and they, they looked like chapters. So it'd be one experience. And I'd be like, that's chapter one. And then another one would happen. And I'm like, God damn, that's chapter 10. And so, and so that's the evolution of how that novel came to be was being really bored gardening and letting my mind reflect on that past. Never really, I mean, there was some icky stuff in there that I had to get through too. So it was very therapeutic to start writing about it. 
And you said you went over to the UK when you were around 20? Yeah, I was 20 years old. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into that. Tell us a little bit about that experience, about uh, making the choice to go over there and uh, Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit what the experience was like for you. Okay. Yeah. I I grew up pretty sheltered. I was raised in a Mormon household and many people in this faith, if you're a female, you're going to usually get married at a pretty young age. And um, I knew that that was not something that I wanted to commit to and that I really wanted to see the world. And so a girlfriend was going backpacking and I decided that I wanted to join her. And so we set out around Europe and um, Morocco and then we ran out of money and we had work visas. So we ended up in London and we were either going to be a au pair or we were going to be a bartender. And so I got an interview as um, a barkeep and ended up staying in London for a year and a half. And the pub that I worked in was so rich in characters that I couldn't stop thinking about them after I returned. There was mafia people. There was, you know, veterans with just such rich history of the war and romantic outings with Edith P.F. and Cockney slangs that you'd have to then decipher and realize that there was this whole other perspective and a whole other world that I had never, ever seen before. And I loved it. I ate it up. So you spent a year and a half and a lot of people go on long vacations or, you know, even up to a year, but you spent a year and a half working abroad. How did that experience change you, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that it gave me a bigger understanding of human beings. And growing up in quite a sheltered home life, I had a beautiful, loving family. But when you're 20 years of going to church every Sunday and then just going to school and you don't have a lot of experiences to draw on and maybe all your parents' friends are of that same faith, then you're pretty narrow-focused And so I didn't really have, uh, of course, I had other friends that um, weren't of that faith, but just delving into the richer cultures of a big city and all the the hype and the aliveness of that city, it just awoke something in me. And I I mean, I didn't really like being in the city. I really did crave and miss nature a lot, but I I also recognized that people had beautiful stories and people came from a different way of living. And it was kind of eye-opening. Even the mafia guys had beautiful stories? Uh, something, yeah. <laughs> a real-life mafia guys, really? Yeah, they, I mean, I, one of them ended up dying and being buried in a cement foundation, I found out later, and people would get their ears cut off and, yeah. Gruesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So would you say that that experience changed you, just giving you more of an understanding about yourself, about the world, about individuals? And then how do you think that, did that change the course of your life at all that trip, you would say? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think a lot of it is that that trip in later years ignited the writer in me. I think without that trip, it never would have happened. And so as much as some of those experiences were incredibly challenging at the time, it was the catalyst of making me have this other passion and something that I wouldn't want to live without being able to write, you know, so... So I thank that experience, even though the alcoholic boyfriend and all the dramas in between were challenging, they also made me a tougher person. I had to rely on myself in many occasions where, you know, I didn't, I had a support system in place back home in Canada that no matter what I could rely, I couldn't rely on anybody. It was just me over there. So I think that teaches youth a lot. Yeah, for sure. I think being in that situation where you only have yourself yourself to rely upon is such a great feeling because it's a huge sense of vulnerability that comes with that, but also a huge sense of learning and then just coming into yourself more and just really identifying what your strengths are in those situations, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's fast forward past that trip. So you come back to Canada, come back to Victoria. Yeah. And what uh, what happened after that? I actually ended up meeting Steve a couple of months later, 
and just a fantastic uh, beginning of a relationship. And then I had promised my sister, my youngest sister, that I would go on a, a trip to the Middle East with her. And so I had to kind of put our relationship on hold while uh, my sister Angela and I took off for a few months to Turkey and Egypt and Israel and Jordan. And so that was really hard because I was just in that beautiful honeymoon phase. And I had to say, sorry, I've already made this commitment. I got to do this thing but I'll be back. And then uh, Steve and I moved in together after a couple of years and went traveling together and fast forward to Pender Island. Okay. I know both you and Steve really well, but I'm really curious about what the initial spark was when you guys first met. Can you remember that maybe not necessarily the first meeting or maybe the first meeting, but what was it that really drew you to, to your future husband? Well, what's interesting is that Steve and I actually went to the same high school, just not at the same time. And I have memories of his parents coming through the checkout at the grocery store that I worked at part time. Steve's five years older than me, so he wasn't really on my radar. But his folks used to come in all the time and buy. I didn't know exactly the smokes they were going to buy. And <laughs> and then later on, we worked at the same place together. Still not really on my radar until probably, you know, I had a little bit of maturity to realize that he was a, a stand-up nice guy. You know, there was niceness in his eyes. So you saw you saw the niceness in his eyes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it, it was something that it was a slow burn that you had to learn some things about yourself before you could sort of identify something within Steve? Yeah. I mean, being certainly being uh, five years younger, you're not going to be on an older man's radar as much, I think. I think that he would have thought I was too young. And uh, certainly there was some very immature moments back then when we first, uh, before we first started dating. So yeah, I think that he needed to know that I'd had some worldly experiences for him to consider dating me. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to touch back in with the uh, topic of your grandfather who you mentioned. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you said that it was an uh, introduction of gardening through him? Hmm. Yeah. I, he has a really significant role. My grandfather lived in, uh, he's my dad's dad. He lived in Meaford, Ontario, and had this beautiful acre garden. And as children, we would go and eat as many strawberries and red currants and whatnot as we could. When he was dying, I went and visited him uh, in the hospital for the last time. And I knew that this garden and house was going to be gone in such a short time. And it had such sweet memories for me. And I can remember, and Steve and I were together at the time, very new into our relationship, but I remember going and picking up a handful of the soil and I couldn't get over how it felt. It just felt so different from the soil on Vancouver Island. It was so soft and loamy and I recognized how well you could grow things in that. And I pined for that place. I wanted it. I remember coming back home and telling my dad, you know, I think that we need to keep this in the family. It is so special. And it was an old home. And I think that was it was hard for my dad and his family to give that place up. For sure. I think it was very nostalgic for them too. But I can't help but think now as we're talking that there is a big correlation between Pender's cottage property and the drive to have that garden that my grandpa cultivated at his place. So Neat. So mm -hmm. was your dad raised in that house or that was a house? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Tiny little bungalow with four boys. And so when you went there to visit, were those road trips that you took in the summertime? No, we flew. You flew? Mm -hmm. Okay. A lot easier than doing... Yeah, with all of our kids. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because how many siblings do you have? Well, I now have four, but at the time there was three other siblings. Okay. Yeah. Road trips across Canada with a bunch of kids in yeah. the back of the car. Hey, people do it. People do it. <laughs> They're fun memories in the future, but at yeah. the time, <laughs> a lot of when are we going to get there? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what was your grandfather's first name? Reginald. Actually, his first name is Charles Reginald Conley. And every firstborn son after became Charles. And the legacy continues. My brother named his firstborn Charles James. Excellent. Yeah. Is that a newborn baby to the family or your brother's? That baby turns two tomorrow. 
Oh, mm-hmm. all right. Congratulations to Charles, <laughs> if you're listening. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, tell us more about the experience of, you know, maybe at that age being on that farm and experiences you had, if you can recollect anything for us. I remember just being simple pleasures. There was just a lot of pie eating. And he was such a humble man. His wife died when my dad was 16. And so he was on his own for a really long time. He raised his family on his own on a really small salary. And so he would slip us these loonies into our pocket. And we just thought it was the best thing ever. Like he was just so sweet and kind, but it was simple. Yeah. And that really affected you. It did. Yeah. Yeah. It was a contrast from what my mom's parents were like. Very generous, but also very wealthy. You would spend time with my um, mom's parents in their lavish home, on their lavish acreage with their gardeners and their maintenance men and, and their convertible cars. And then you would go to my, my other grandpa's house and it was really humble, but it felt so safe and so loved. You know, Hmm. that's interesting. I have two friends that have had cottages in their family that they grew up with and their parents soon after they became adults, turned them into more elaborate homes. And both those friends have spoken very passionately about the feelings that they had of the cottages and a bit of a dislike for the new version of the property that the addition and having more money put into, you know, more space and things being nicer doesn't feel better. Right. Right. Because mostly we tie into our feelings at that time. And so if it felt really loved and really together, maybe it was close knit, maybe it was sitting around the fire or board games or whatever that was when there was time together, you don't need extra space for that. If anything, you need small space to keep everyone from disappearing into a different room. And I think we can learn a lot from that. Yeah. Nice. I remember taking trips with my family and my sister and I had some great bonding experiences during those trips. How were the trips for you and your siblings during those times? I think good. I mean, we were hanging out with cousins that we only saw once every five years. And so, you know, trying to build on memories. I have a really close relationship with my my siblings, but I think we fought a lot when we were younger. We fought and teased each other. But in times of having to have really good behavior around aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas, I think we really came together and kind of relied on each other to be playmates and whatnot. I think there were good times. I think growing up with my siblings, uh, we moved around a few times because my dad's a police officer and he had to get transferred a few times. And I think that we relied on each other as playmates a lot before the transition of meeting other friends and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Well, we've talked about your your dad and your dad's family a little bit here. What about your mom? What can you tell us about your mom? Um, My mom is like the grounding force of the family. She is the ultimate cheerleader and encourager. And my mom and dad actually had a baby when they were 18. And so my older sister. And my dad ended up having to leave for training to be an RCMP officer at a really young age. And she had to bring up this child with her folks. And so my grandparents were very significant in raising uh, my older sister, Jessica, for that first year while my dad was away in training. That probably helped my mom so much. And then my dad got posted halfway across Canada. And I think they were 19 or 20 years old when they left Ontario for BC with a child. And they had no support systems in place. That must have been so challenging for both of them. I think particularly for my mom. She was really close with her family. And uh, my dad worked long hours as a new police officer. And she was really alone in that journey. And yeah. Have you had conversations with your mom? Because you're a mother of two, and have you had mm-hmm. conversations about that with your mom? She's She has talked about it being a really challenging time because it's not like now where you can make a long-distance phone call and it doesn't really cost anything. Back then, long-distance phone call cost a fortune, and they wouldn't have had the budget for that. 
So I think she felt very isolated. Some of the communities that my dad moved us were really hard on her, but she's so friendly. That woman had friends. You know, I remember her having tea with so many women and their children. And I think that a lot of RCMP mothers really bridged together, especially in those times when none of them were working. They were just at home raising their children without their partners and they needed each other. They needed someone to talk to. So yeah, I have great memories of those younger years, those those childhood years, for sure. That's great. Just going to slide back into Ender times here. And I know that when you and Steve were here for a little while, you eventually wound up building a house together. We did. Yeah, people do that on this island. They a lot, do. A lot of people do. Tell mm-hmm. us about the experience of building a house on Pender Island. With a brand new baby. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so we bought the cottage and Steve was very adamant that there was a lot for sale beside it. And he said to the realtor, I'll buy this cottage if I can get this lot right beside it. And it just so happened that it was owned by the same person with the cottage. And so I think the guy was having a hard time selling it. So he said, okay, fine. Yeah, we'll sell both. I guess it was four years after living here, we poured the foundation for our house and had a lot of help in building the house. So we did the plans and uh, had an architect draw them up. We hired a couple builders and well, we hired everybody. Steve did a lot of the finishing. There was many nights where we'd put our son down for a sleep and then we would go in till midnight and put insulation in or paint or put flooring down. There was not a lot of sleep that first year. No, I guess <laughs> I guess not. Newborn and building a house. Yeah. Did you have a dog as well too? We did have a dog. What? Our first dog at the time. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that experience is more unique to an island living situation than it is to the city about a couple building their house together on the island. And I just want to hear a little bit more about maybe some of the uh, positives and maybe negatives of a situation like that for people listening who might be thinking about taking on a project like that in the future. What, uh, What would you have to say about that? And actually, how many years ago was that? We built the house 10 years ago. Positives? Huge learning. I mean, there is so much learning about each other, uh, how deep you can go into pushing yourself to, we're going to get it done and we're going to have this beautiful home. And then, you know, our family's going to grow and all our family's going to come and visit us. And we wanted people to be comfortable when they came and visited us. We couldn't accommodate people for overnights and whatnot in our little cottage. We also wanted to have another child at some point. And so we knew that we needed to expand and it's extremely hard because you can't get all of your supplies here. So oftentimes you're going to town to pick up and you're dealing with ferry and there's huge costs in building a home. So there's financial strain and stress, but you get something that you ultimately want. It's like everything that you want, you've mapped it out. So the goal is so you want it so bad that you're just willing to keep pushing and pushing. I would tell anyone to build their own house. I mean, I think that I would tell them honestly some of the setbacks that are involved, but it's so rewarding. Yeah. And in terms of when it's finished and living in the house, because I know for a number of people on the island have spent numerous seasons living in a trailer while the house is being built and the difficulty that comes with that. But what's the feeling when it's done? Yeah, expansive, especially if you're living, you know, in a tiny 500 square foot to bridging out. It felt Sam had his first sleep in the new house straight through the night. So we could tell that probably the refrigerator had been keeping him up all night for that first year of his life. It was just a big accomplishment as a couple to be able to come together with minimal scratches and to have it as a legacy to say to our kids that, yeah, we did this and we did it because we wanted to create memories here and to have more family come and stay with us. There was so many people involved in it too. We had friends help us. We had family help us. And so it felt really good to invite them and say, hey, thanks. Thanks to your guys' help. This is what we did together. That's great. Yeah. I think what we can learn from this experience as well, too, is that if you have a newborn that's having trouble sleeping, you don't need to build a new house. You might just need to get a new refrigerator. (laughs) Good one. 
All right. So I also want to touch on something that you mentioned in an email that you sent me because I asked you a few questions before we had this interview. And something that you mentioned was before you came to live on Pender Island, some of the happiest times you had were swimming in lakes. I think subsequently after moving to the island as well, too, that's some of your fondest memories. Can you just uh, tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. I think I've loved swimming ever since I was a child. I was always in the pool and uh, certainly swam in my fair share of lakes as a child growing up. My dad had a love of swimming in lakes. And so we would spend time going to Kootenai Lake and various other places. So when I moved to Vancouver Island, swam in lakes with the family. And then I wanted to spend more time just by myself. And so I would go on hunts for solitary lakes, which are usually nudist lakes. One of these lakes I really, really found myself in. There was something so cleansing about it. When I would leave it, I wanted to go back to it immediately. It just lifted me up. There was something so pure about it. It was so quiet. There was forest all around it. I felt like it was my own. And it was like cougar habitat. And I never was scared of any of the wildlife. So when I came to Pender and I found that there was lakes here, I was pumped. So I have a deep love affair with Roe Lake and Greenburn Lake. And uh, the first couple of years here before I had kids, I would go there daily. It was one of them. Wherever I was, I would, I would make sure that I would swim. And I was like always alone. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, am I not supposed to swim here? Because there's never anyone here. Now they're a lot more popular, but those are my summertime memories is swimming in lakes. Fantastic. I love swimming in lakes as well, too. And that's part of the reason why I brought it up because it's a shared love. But on my birthday last year, September 28th, my wife and I went to Row Lake and went for a swim the very end of September. And it was still warm enough to go swimming in the that's... lake. And man, that felt like a very cleansing experience. No kidding. I mean, I've run into people, old timers that say that they swim every day of the year. Every day. Wow. I know. And they look so vital that I believe them. And there has been times where I've hiked around Roe Lake and been warm enough in the fall thinking, should I? And I just don't. It's but cold. I've thought it's about cold. it. It's too cold. Wintertime's cold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but you know, like, you've run into people who say they swim every day. Yeah. In the ocean or in lakes? Whichever. Wow. Yeah, this one woman in particular, I don't know if she's still alive. She was quite elderly. And she said every day for like 25 years she had been doing it. That's amazing. It is. I think that we have attachment to certain animals in our lives, that whether it be the spirit within us or whether it be past lives, whatever you choose to believe, but I feel a certain connection to certain animals. And I wonder, I wonder if those people had previous experience or previous connections to fish or ducks or mm -hmm. something. I wonder. Mm -hmm. For sure. I was, uh, when I went to Southeast Asia and I took scuba diving lessons, I just loved it. I was initially really frightened to do it. But once I did, there was a feeling of sameness with a seal. And I think probably a lot of scuba divers probably feel that sleekness of being in the suit and breathing underwater and having your fins. But it is so freeing to have that ability to go around a reef and through rocks and whatnot. Yeah, it's amazing. It's just a different perspective. I remember mm -hmm. when I started running and I thought, wow, this is a different speed I'm moving at than walking or cycling. But to be inside a body of water versus being on land, totally different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a wonderful experience as well, too. So it certainly sounds as if being in water is very important to you. It is. I can't imagine a summer without swimming. But in particular lakes, the ocean's a bit cold. And salty a little bit too salty. Yeah. Yeah. And what about pools, though? What about chlorinated pools? Yeah, I'll go in a pool, but I don't love it. It's not the same. But I do get joyful. I have found that there is an element of playfulness and deep-bellied laughter that comes out of even being in a pool, especially when I'm with my kids. Deep-bellied laughter? Yeah, like... <laughs> <laughs> I think I have to be in water to feel it more. Yeah, though. me too. Came out a little a little weak. Yeah. 
All right. Well, moving into the second traditional question that this show will always have is who on Pender has given you help along the way, Sarah? Too hard. That's too hard a question. Why? Uh, It's too hard to answer because the 14 years that I've spent here, I feel like there's been a constant series of chapters that keep opening and then ending and then another one will open. And I feel like there's been so many significant people in each of those chapters that I, I worry about leaving somebody out. I will say that that nature has been a really significant influence for me. I like to go on long walks and hikes through the forest. It soothes me, obviously the swimming. If I was to say nature aside, because nature and digging in the dirt and starting that garden has been so significant to my healing, you know, and who I am and how I feel good and how I release stress. But I think also having Steve be part of this journey and getting to know each other in this new chapter of our lives, he is the biggest supporter. He's like the cheerleader in this life for me. And so I would say, yeah, a tremendous amount of gratitude for a life partner. Fantastic. Lovely. That's lovely. Thanks. Yeah. And on top of that as well, too, it sounds like, and we talked about this off air a little bit before we started the interview, that there's too many people because you've received a lot of help on this island as well, too. Absolutely. Yeah. The influences from writing mentors to gardening clients that have been significant to me to childcare providers that have looked after my children. I mean, the list is huge. And I, I'm so grateful for so much of this community. I think that it is really helped shape who I am, and I'm really grateful. Yeah, it's interesting. I've lived here full time for, I guess, about four years and a bit and on and off for a few extra years on top of that. But it seems very obvious to me that living within this community has definitely shaped me in a different way versus living in a city. Right. Yeah. And that's part of what I want to get to through this podcast is to hear people's individual experiences as to why that is. And maybe if you can speak to that a little bit more specifically as to how you think this community has helped you in various ways. Well, I think, I mean, it's not all positive. You know, I think that those experiences that challenge you through um, different personalities are the most incredible teachers in that moment. And so as much as I can be challenged and I can go home and I can stomp my feet for a moment, I can also feel the next day that expansive quality of recognizing that, holy smokes, I just learned so much within that challenge. And where am I going to go from here with that challenge? And thank you for that challenge for broadening my awareness and helping me through that challenge if I have to deal with it with another person. So even in the negative experiences of living in a small community, those are those are great moments. The positive, well, this community bridges so much love and support for people that need it. I think that it would be really challenging to be, you'd have to set out to be isolated here because anybody that needs help and asks for it will get it. I have been part of so many different meal trains and fundraisers for people in trouble. And I love small communities for, for doing stuff like that for other people. You know, it's really fascinating what you say about if you are in need of help and you ask for it, then it will be there for you within this community. Because I wonder through doing this podcast, if I'm going to be able to interview any people who do feel as if they have extreme isolation within this island that they can't break. And I wonder, I wonder sometimes because... I guess the current population of the island is 2,500, 3,000. I'm not even sure. I think it's 2,500. Yeah, I think you're speaking to belonging. And I think there's something about each of us that desperately wants to belong. And whether it's the broader sense of I live on Pender Island and I belong to that community, or it's the tiny little groups that make up certain organizations or friendships. 
And I think all of us want to belong to something or someone. And it starts from the very beginning of our life where um, we want to belong to mom or dad or our, our family and feel validated and feel loved and cherished. So certainly, are there people on this island that feel isolated and that they don't belong? Yeah, I know that there are. But there has to be a choice. There has to be that choice that says, I choose to be isolated. Or there's this choice that says, I want to be included, but I got to put myself there. Right. That responsibility is on the individual for sure. But we're in the time of winter right now, and there's a lot of darkness because there's a lot of treat areas. And I know that a lot of people suffer from seasonal depression. Maybe not, say, a lot of people, but it's my understanding that there's a significant portion of people that through the wintertime have a bit of a difficult time, myself included, actually. I just wonder about people on this island and if there's a, an epidemic of isolation or people feeling as if they can't find what they're looking for here. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I do feel like I can't talk to the people that are struggling in that way. I don't know how I would offer someone that wisdom other than showing kindness. I think getting outside your house and turning off screens is a really great starting point for that. But I mean, I can't speak to mental illness. I can't speak to, you know, putting up walls between community and yourself. Yeah, for sure. This winter in particular, I've noticed I've been in front of the screens a lot, but also spent a significant amount of time outside and just realizing it just makes me feel so good. Yeah. There's nothing quite like it. Yeah. It's really amazing. Yeah. I don't know why we try to experience the reproduction of that on a two-dimensional screen all the time. I know. <laughs> I know. Well said. Moving into the current with you right now, what what are you thinking about these days? What's going through Sarah's mind a lot? Well, 2018, uh, New Year's just, just happened. And so I like to set a few goals. So one of them was that I have to start submitting more works of writing. And... I just hate getting rejected. I mean, it's terrible. <laughs> and I think when I get these rejection letters, I want to give up and say, what's the point? And then I realize I just can't, still can't stop. And so I still want to do it. But it would be nice to get a little bit of money for it every once in a while. Yeah. You know? So I made some goals and I kind of um, have set myself up. I mean, it's only the beginning of February, but I have submitted a children's book idea. At the end of the month, I have uh, a deadline to put some short stories to a contest. And hopefully I keep this up. I just want to keep it up and just keep looking at different areas to submit. Well, how's that feeling for you? Because obviously there's some pressure involved with that. How is that feeling so far? Because we're about a month into the new year. Mm -hmm. It feels really great. I think I do well when there's a deadline. It kind of keeps me on track and keeps me motivated. I am one of those people that can get sucked into a Netflix drama pretty quickly and just want to go through a binge a whole season. So to have something to go to in my evenings is, it feels really good. I feel way better when I write than when I don't. So that's been good. I have a new job that I've been doing for almost two years now. And so I think about it a lot. When I was gardening, I was getting tired of gardening in itself. I'd been gardening for 15, 20 years and my body was starting to hurt. And as much as I loved being outside, I could see that my body wasn't going to be able to do this for another 20 years. So I needed to look for something and I didn't know where to go, like what, where I would be of use. And so I kept kind of, I would have this mantra, like put me somewhere where I can be useful, put me somewhere where I can serve, put me somewhere that makes me happy. You know, all these little things that we want in a career. And so when I was approached to apply for the position of Dragonfly Child Care and Family Resource Center as a manager there, well, initially I thought there's no way I can do that job. And then uh, once I took the role on, I realized that I'd finally found a calling that served the greater community. And I actually just really loved my job and I loved the staff 
and I love the kids and I love the parents. And so it was such a, a, a win-win. Well, I want to get further into that in a moment, but I just want to touch back to what you said about having a mantra that you repeated or different mantras you repeated. So you had a lot of focused intention in finding your next path. Absolutely. Absolutely. I felt lost again. I felt like initially when I came to Pender that I'd really been found and I was so happy to be out in nature all the time. I felt really blessed to have beautiful gardening clients and beautiful properties to work on. And as that body starts to hurt more and more, and maybe the weather isn't cooperating with you, you start getting kind of in a loop of uh, maybe I don't like this job. Oh, my elbow's really hurting and on and on. And I could feel the stuckness creeping in and it was taking on a mild depression. It felt that I, I didn't know where to go on Pender. What, what do you do on Pender? It can be quite limiting. And yet the beautiful thing about asking for something and having small intentions of what you wanted of something is that a job is all of a sudden created or, you know, falls in your lap. And that's exactly what I felt like happened. It just was there. But I had to have courage to take it because everything in me said, no, this is too hard. It's too scary. It's too big for me. And there was Steve again saying, you got this. I'll help you. You can do this. So it was pretty cool. And I had so many, so much other support from people as well that were helping me through it. So, I mean, it hasn't been a journey that I've done on my own at all. That's interesting what you said earlier about asking for something that you want. And uh, my wife, who works with you at Dragonfly, Geneva, she plays this game with me in the morning sometimes. It goes, what's your wish for the day? And I find it a very difficult question to answer probably about at least half the days because it's a hard thing to ask for what you want versus to point out the things you don't want. And it's such a rewarding experience when I feel committed to an answer and I can actually see the results take place later on that day. Whether my answer is I want a connection with another person or I want to have a wonderful experience in nature or whatever my response is usually winds up happening because I'm subconsciously looking for it then. Yeah, and you're open. I mean, if you made the wish, you're open to it. So it's going to present itself. I have a daily practice. I, every morning I wake up, I try to, sometimes I don't, but I wake up and I do about 40 minutes of meditation. And then I go into about 20 minutes of yoga and uh, it kind of sets my day up. I can really tell when I haven't done it. And I think in doing that practice, first of all, I've said yes to Sarah. I've said that I'm worth it. And I think I've struggled with my worth my whole life of whether I'm worthy to have certain things and justifying things all the time. And so to say I'm worth having quiet time and cultivating a loving moment with myself and looking after my body in a good way, then that kind of sets me up for the day. That's amazing. So virtually every day you wind up meditating. For if, I'm, if I'm really tired and, or if I'm sick, I let myself sleep in. But yeah, it's my practice. And then 20 minutes of yoga. Mm-hmm. Some good stretching. What was your introduction to yoga, would you say? Oh, I've been off and on dabbling in yoga for a number of years. But I would have to say that Lester helped my practice go every day. I spent a couple months in Lester's class and it was a beautiful beginner's class. And I went with Steve. We committed to doing it together. So it was kind of couple yoga for us. And it was right after that where I thought, well, I'm a bit cheap. I think I can do this just by myself and not pay, not drive somewhere. And I did. Uh, I've been doing it over a year every day committed. So... And so this is Let's Lester Quitzow That's we're right. referring to. Yeah. Who shout out. Shout, shout out. out. All right. Good job, Lester. <laughs> who recently started teaching yoga. He did. Yeah. yeah. How was it being in his class? Beautiful. Yeah. It was beautiful. Yeah. It was a great class. What I really liked about it was it didn't feel competitive and it didn't feel the age didn't matter. And I really liked that feeling because oftentimes I find if I'm with women of all the same age, I get really competitive and then I'm not really looking after myself and I get weird thoughts when I can't do something right. And I thought, you know, 
as beautiful as those teachers were, and I thank them, uh, it wasn't good for me. I myself personally am only into competitive yoga. Yeah. And uh, it's a thing for me, for sure. I want to outstretch the guy beside me, but I never can because I'm not flexible and I don't do yoga. So anyway, but that's great. And the yoga was taking place, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Hope Bay Studios. That's right. A beautiful venue. And I often would think about just diving right into the ocean after class because the windows stretch all the way down from ceiling to floor and it's overlooking like the water actually laps underneath the building i mean it is stunning in there it is yeah yeah Yeah. you can hear it you can hear it lap yeah it's pretty but you never jumped in though no okay it was winter all right i've thought about jumping in at hope bay as well too Uh but i've never done it it does seem appealing but there's just something that keeps me from doing it as well too yeah fear of hitting a rock maybe there's gasoline there's some boats there's some boats there's some boats All right. Well, I'm just going to give an open question to you here and see where it goes. But just asking you, is there anything that you feel like discussing right now? Anything that you feel like we haven't touched on that you want to discuss? How about my love of my dog? Oh, yeah. Let's do that. (laughs) For sure. Tell us about your dog. First, why don't you tell them why you don't like my dog? It's not that I don't like your dog. It's just that I'm not a huge boxer fan. But you're looking after her in two weeks, right? Uh, That is correct. For sure. Okay. And your, your dog's name is? Maple. Maple Dog. Maple th- Maple is a great dog, very well-trained dog, great dog. But why do you love your dog so much? I was actually thinking about this this morning before the interview. Why do I love my dog so much? She doesn't talk. She wants to go on walks in nature with me. Uh, she won't swim with me, which is fine because most dogs just drown you when they come out with you anyways. But then I was thinking, wait, I've always loved dogs. I've loved dogs. I've loved animals forever. And I remembered this experience when I was 10, which is the age of my son. And I had $5 in my cutoff jeans pocket. And I walked into downtown Creston, BC. And lo and behold, there was a cardboard box full of $5 puppies. And I bought one without telling my mom and dad. That is amazing. What? You bought a $5 puppy? Yeah, for a day. What do you mean for a day? So I then took the dog home and hid it with all my stuffies in the toy box and recognized that I had no food to give the whining, yelping puppy and that I eventually had to come clean to my mom. I was acting very suspicious. Finally told my mom, who was aghast at the whole thing and thought that I had been smoking while I was hiding this dog and acting very strange all day. Wait, how old were you at the time? Ten. Ten. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad you, you weren't smoking. Though, I was right? not smoking. Good. I was just hiding a puppy. Good job, Sarah. That's that's way better than smoking. <laughs> but continue. So then uh, she said something like, wait till your dad gets home. And dad came home and was like, you got to take that puppy home. We are not having a puppy. And I was really glad at the end because that puppy made me stay up all night long, whining and crying, and I didn't get any sleep, and we took it home, or took it back home to the owners. To the cardboard box. To the cardboard box. Okay. And said, take your puppy back. You can keep your $5. And so no regrets on not having that puppy? No, I was really sad. I was sad, but I was really tired, and it was kind of, you know, all-nighter. And there was another experience when we moved to Vancouver Island, and my dad said, I promise when we make this move, I'll buy you a dog. Guess what? He bought you a carton of cigarettes instead? (laughs) He didn't buy me a dog. He didn't buy you a dog. No, he lied. Oh. Yeah. So there's a pattern. And that I needed a dog. Okay. You needed not just a dog, but a puppy. Right. Right. Okay. So uh, also when Maple came into my life, my very dear and close sister, Ange, Ange and Luke were living here on Pender Island and um, they moved. And so Maple was just this companion that kind of eased, you know, missing my sister. And it was a companion to have on these long walks that we used to take as sisters. And my love affair of Maple grew. How old is Maple? Four. Four. How many dogs? 35 in dogs? So roughly around the age of 30? I think so. Yeah. I think that's how it rolls. Okay. Yeah. All right. Maple dog. Maple dog. Okay. So I'm, I'm taking care of maple dog coming up here. You sure are. Which I'll enjoy. You will. Yeah. 
It's just I'm I'm more of a fan of the the long haired hound. You like a hound? Not necessarily a hound. Maybe like a mixed breed, like a pointy nose. Give me a little German Shepherd. A in tail. There. Give me a tail. Yeah, the Give tail. Me- I like to see a tail wagging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me understand what the dog's thinking. But Maple is a is a bum wagger. Oh yeah, she Full puts hip. her whole bum into it. Yeah, she gets into it for sure. You mentioned your sister Ange, and let's talk about that momentarily. Your uh, your lovely sister Ange, who moved yeah. lived here when you moved here. Can you what can you tell us about your sister? Yeah, Ange moved uh, probably a year and a half after Steve and I moved here with her husband, her now husband, and having them move here was incredible. You know, we had a great relationship beforehand. And so to have someone there to help me raise the kids and be great aunties and uncles, somebody that was interested in diving into that lake with me and pounding out the trails and pounding out whatever issues were going on in the community when I needed to talk to somebody, uh, she was those ears. So I valued their friendship so much when they lived here. And really, really miss them when they left. And where did they leave to? They went to Powell River and now they're in Victoria. And from what I understand as well, too, is that you have a older brother living in Powell River? I do. Yeah. And lo- he loves it there. So you spent a bit of time going back and forth. I have. And I actually considered that to be a community I was interested in living in. At a time when I was really missing my sister um, and my brother also lived in Powell River, I looked to Powell River as could I see myself there? You know, that's how much families meant to me and how much I wanted to be closer to them. And yeah, we went back and forth visiting each other. And I looked I looked pretty hard at moving there, but things changed. Pender is your home. Pender's my home. Pender's your home. Well, maybe let's just end off on that and see, see where we go with this. But just to uh, bring it back to Pender Island, which I guess this podcast is about, and speak to that a little bit as well, too. Any final thoughts you want to share with us on anything that you hadn't mentioned before about Pender Island and experiences you might want to share? To go back to that conversation we had about belonging, I think that people in this community love being on Pender because they feel a part of something bigger. And I think that they love that even if there's not family here, that it feels like family. It feels that they can rely on people. I feel like there's safety nets in place for people here. At least I really hope that for everyone here, because I certainly feel it for myself. And also one more thing is that I would be remiss if I didn't Bring this up. I just wanted to talk about your uh, anniversary celebration, which you mentioned to me in the past as well, too. If you could just tell us a little bit about that, about uh, where you got married. Oh, with and, Steve, yeah. Yeah, where you mm-hmm. got married and how you celebrate your anniversary. Yeah, so Steve and I got married at Brooks Point 12 years ago. And we now like to, on June 11th, our, which is our anniversary, we like to go there and take a picnic and bring our kids and share that experience with them. And we never took a video of our wedding. And so the kids are always so curious about what that looked like and felt like. And so we try and just talk about it while we're there and where I stood and where dad was and where all the family was. And yeah, try and share share with them. I actually had a really good friend of mine last year take pictures of us there right around our anniversary. And it was so beautiful to see the changes that had happened in our family. We had a dog that was our first dog that was part of our wedding 12 years ago. And then now we have two kids and, and another dog and just the changes and the more wrinkles and glasses, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Glasses and wrinkles. Glasses and wrinkles. We gotta love them. Yeah. But that's great. So you celebrate your anniversary at the same place where you got married every year. Well, you know, we try to. Yeah. Or around around that day. Around that day. Yeah. Yeah. But that's amazing. That's amazing to be able to do that. And to I, I think that's a, a beautiful tradition. Thank you. All Thank right. you. I think it makes the kids feel part of something too. Because, yeah, obviously, by the sounds of it, they feel really included and yeah. and uh, included in something that they weren't there for That's the first right. time around. Yeah. Right on. Well, Sarah, 
Thank you so much for coming in and doing an interview. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really, I really love this. Okay, well, that's the end of our show for this week. And I'd just like to thank everybody for tuning in. But we'll be back next week with another episode and another interview. Thank you again to Sarah. And we'll see you next time. Bye. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening, everyone. And in honor of that interview, I decided that I would come to Row Lake. Row Lake is located on North Pender Island, and to get here, I drove from my house through the Magic Lake area, drove on Galleon Way into Shingle Bay, and after I parked, I walked about a kilometer, and half of that was up a very steep hill to get to the top here, where I can see to my north a large hill in front of me dotted with mostly fir, some cedar, and the otter butis tree. There's some sunlit clouds above me, some ducks on the water just to my right, and in no way, shape, or form am I even dreaming about swimming right now because it's about two degrees out and very windy. However, it's incredibly beautiful to be here. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time.